Hello, everyone. Welcome to Mental Health TV. Uh, it's lovely to have you with us. Um, we have a full house today. As you can see, we're going to be talking about mental health research. Um, so let's start by introducing everybody. Um, you know me, I'm uh, Nikki Lambert. I'm a mental health nurse and I teach mental health nurses. And I introduce you to my colleague, Vanessa. Hello, everyone. I'm Vanessa Garrity, mental health nurse like Nikki, um, run we mental health nurses. Um, tonight, I'm going to be trying to bring some of the conversation in on social media. So do ask questions um, via Facebook or if you follow MHTV hashtag on Twitter, I'll be keeping an eye on the feed there as well. And um, we look forward to your questions. Fantastic. Um, Raza? Hello, my name is Raza. Uh, I'm a mental health service user, mental health activist, academic and I was one of the researchers on the mental health research and COVID-19 that we're going to be talking about. Fantastic. Alan? Hello there. Uh, Alan Simpson. I'm Professor of Mental Health Nursing at King's College London and co-director of the Mental Health Policy Research Unit. Fantastic. And that leaves us last but absolutely not least with Emma. <laughs> Good evening, everybody. My name is Emma Wadey. I'm the Head of Mental Health Nursing for NHS England and Improvement, and I'm the clinical lead for the Mental Health and Learning Disability and Autism COVID Response Cell. Um, and I'm also a PhD student. Absolutely, covering all the bases there. Yeah. Obviously, as ever, we have the fabulous Dave Monday lurking in the background. Emphasis mm -hmm. on lurking. <laughs> um, and <laughs> what I'd like us to talk about to begin with is Emma's been doing some, um, some work. And could you tell us a little bit about the work that you've been doing in response to the COVID experience we've all been in? Yeah, so I feel a little bit of a fraud naming this as research because it's not pure research um, in, its, in its purest sense. But what I had wanted to do was make sure that we could capture the voice and experience of mental health nurses and get that voice and experience out there really, really quickly in terms of key themes. So myself and Dr Gemma Stacey from the Florence Nightingale Foundation, we pulled together some um, reflective practice sessions that were open to all uh, clinicians working in mental health, all mental health nurses at band five and six. So we really wanted to, to get people at that direct point of care and just to share their experience of what life has been like for them in terms of providing care and support and treatment to their patients and service users and their carers during this period of lockdown. And what sort of things have you been finding? So it was a real mixture in terms of some positives and some negatives in terms of service transformation. But the, the one clear message that all of them wanted to share, and we were lucky that we had a really good spread of mental health nurses across the country. Um, in fact, we had a couple of interlopers from Scotland and, and Wales, but we weren't, we weren't precious. It's always important <laughs> to learn and share from, from across other areas as well. Mm. Um, but the resounding thing that all of them wanted to share first was that feeling of invisibility mm. um, and the feeling that mental health nursing, the role of mental health nurses, was kind of what they classed as that hidden frontline, and that was their words rather than mine, but also that the needs of the people they were, were caring and worrying about were also a little bit hidden as every all eyes focused, I suppose, around the physical health needs of COVID and, of course, the need and the, the fear about what the pressure might look like in terms of intensive care, etc. So it was very much feeling perhaps not valued, perhaps not considered, um, and that perhaps there was a feeling that things had shut down and everywhere was closed for business. Mm. I can see some nodding going on. What about you, Vanessa? Do you have any things you'd like to talk about in terms of that invisibility or visibility of nurses, mental health? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting one, but I think I've, I've picked up a similar thing, particularly, um, you know, with some of the conversations online and not just, you know, um, not just mental health nurses, but other mental health clinicians as well. And um, and also I think it reflects in some of the conversations I've had about um, mental health generally being ignored within kind of COVID because everybody's focusing on the physical health, but the reality is that the mental health needs are massive as well. And actually just as life-threatening in lots of scenarios as they are the physical health needs. So I wonder if it's part of a wider um, you know, a wider issue really about mental health and the way it's represented. And, you know, it's sort of manifesting around mental health nurses feeling invisible, but it's actually part of a bigger issue. I don't know what other people think. Any thoughts? Yeah, I think um, 
I think we were very aware when we were looking at doing some research around the impact of COVID-19 on mental health services and mental health service users that there were studies going on, but the majority of them were aimed at the general public, um, trying okay. to understand the impact of COVID-19 on them. And then, as others have said, on the impact in uh, in my day would have been called general hospitals and intensive care units and, and the impact there. And very much um, there was very little attention being given to mental health service services and even less to people with pre-existing mental health problems and, and arguably, particularly those with severe mental illness. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Did you want to come in at all, Rosa? Don't have to. Yeah, certainly the, the research I've been doing um, with the lived experience advisory group um, at University College um, on the COVID-19 pandemic and its effects on mental health services as well as staff has shown quite a lot of challenges this has thrown up for mental health service users, particularly, um, you know, if you are now having to get support or therapy uh, through telehealth, um, it can actually be very difficult for some people to open up because of fears around confidentiality and, and you know, is the internet secure? Um, so that's one of the issues. I mean, another is the emotional difficulty of talking about very personal things to someone else. If, let's say, you're a single parent and where do you put your young children? I think while some mental health service users who are tech savvy and uh, are, are in a good position to kind of take up uh, getting that support for others, it's a, it's a major, major hurdle, as well as just the, the sheer lack of, I think when you're, when you're trying to talk to someone um, through the internet, um, it can sometimes be hard to establish the same rapport as you would you know, when you're with someone in the same room. I think if, particularly if you don't have a pre-existing relationship with, you know, your therapist or caregiver, then it's very hard to build that um, relationship from scratch over the internet. Absolutely, that's really interesting points. Absolutely. And I think it, it hooks into a little bit of, I think, Emerald, you were kind of looking at this from the other side. Mm. Yeah, so there are a couple of aspects really. So all of them talk about the real rapid change that needed to happen and the transformation in the way that they delivered care happened almost overnight with very little um, or none, in fact, involvement of clinicians or service users and in terms of what that transformation might look like, for want of a better word. So there was talk about people being deployed um, and expected to work in an incredibly different way almost overnight. And part of that, that shift and change was, of course, moving away from face-to-face -face, um, appointments, home visits, um, that, that contact that had been the real cornerstone of mental health nursing to, to a much more virtual world, if a world at all. So um, some elements that people spoke about was having to rapidly reprioritize and relook at who were going to be the beneficiaries of support, if that's the right word. And what that meant was that it got very stripped down to quite a medical-based model. So looking at priorities around people's um, medical requirements, for want of a better word, so what depots they might need, what blood tests, as opposed to thinking about the psychological distress and needs that might also be there. Um, and within, within that, as Roz has just said, that shift to virtual meant that people felt quite blinkered in terms of the assessments they did. They found that they often relied very much on that personal contact, the verbal and nonverbal cues. They're looking at how someone was looking after themselves, did they have milk in the fridge, all those mm. things that form part of our biopsychosocial assessments, if you like, mm. um, or the fact that a lot of the time we would come and, and sit alongside people, whether that be shopping or cooking a meal or cleaning out the goldfish, that was taken away. Mm. Um, and as Raza just said, so what they started to talk about was also feeling that they weren't giving the care they wanted to, that gold standard of care wasn't there anymore, so they weren't able to provide the support they would like to in the way that they would like to, but also the difficulties about suddenly working from home. So although they spoke about it was very nice to have that blended approach, it meant that you could see and have contact with more people. It was a very um, efficient way in some ways to use time. You weren't wasting time commuting or traveling. Um, it also meant you lost some of that downtime, that decompression time, or the, just the time to think actually between seeing people, you know, and, and kind of reset or refresh before the next appointment. But it also really eroded professional boundaries. 
which mm. for some people was really, really difficult. So mm. many spoke about um, the difficulty about having really complex or traumatic conversations where their children might be interrupting or in the background, yeah. or where they might be having really complex discussions. We had some forensic um, mental health nurses talking, for instance, where they really felt their own safety was compromised in terms of the therapeutic relationship if it then was in their own home, almost like a deep, you know, almost like a contamination. That's, you know, that was the strong words they were using. But likewise, where they had um, people that worked in early intervention, that young people had said the same thing, that they felt their homes were contaminated by having the workers coming into their homes or their bedrooms, um, alongside all the issues around safeguarding or, or confidentiality. And, and so that there was a lot of mirroring, actually. And so although we're thinking and talking about different perspectives, how it left people feeling were very similar, you know, regardless of whether you were the clinician or whether you, in fact, were the patient, the service user, the carer. That's absolutely fascinating because so much of that was reflected in the national survey that we did that, that Raza was a big part of. And um, so we had, uh, we ended up including over 2,000 responses in the analysis, about 3,000 people sort of logged in and, and started. Mm -hmm. And about a half of those, I think, were community mental health staff. And they're the biggest challenge for them. We, we've got a list of the, the key challenges. And the biggest challenge for them was, exactly as Emma said, this rapid requirement for them to work in a different way, to do more remote working, telephone, video calls, and so on, and this sort of prioritization of people. And the tension between not being able to provide as good a service as you wanted to in, in that environment. And those were real, real stressors. Uh, for inpatient staff, the big priorities were around infection control and the challenges of, uh, of uh, trying to minimise the risk of patients uh, becoming infected with COVID-19, uh, other staff becoming infected with it. But managing that in a context where you, even if you had PPE, sometimes there were difficulties with that, but even where they had it, working in very cramped conditions and very often with people who didn't, um, didn't understand through their cognitive def deficits or confusion or weren't willing to go along with requirements to socially distance and stuff. But just, just going back to that, that distance, that, uh, that uh, distant working with people mm. and working from in your own home, it's absolutely fascinating. And we, we were talking earlier how the, the, the mirroring of some of the experiences and the concerns of service users are being shared by many staff. Uh, there was a psychiatrist on Twitter earlier today talking about exactly this, of the, the difficulties and the tensions of not having that gap when you drive to your next appointment or drive home back to the office or whatever, um, or, or get on your bike and go home and have a bit of space, but actually you're doing it in your own home. And um, as Raza, I'm sure, will say more, that that, that mm -hmm. invasion into your home, particularly if you're dealing with difficult things, and perhaps not having the ability to have privacy in your own home from other people is, is a big, big challenge. Apparently, mm -hmm. um, uh, part of a, well, it has to be online at the moment, but it's a therapeutic community, uh, an NHS therapeutic community, so we're receiving online therapy. But it's very interesting to see who are the people who are able to engage with that? And who are the people who have not been able to engage with that? So, you know, single parents, they've kind of fallen by the wayside, for example. Some people who, who um, feel very paranoid or are not very okay with using technology, they've kind of fallen by the wayside. Um, I mean, I'm kind of quite okay. I mean, for me, I mean, I'm, I'm okay with this and it's, it's, it's okay. Um, there were two other things I just wanted to emphasize um, in terms of the barriers, I think, or additional hurdles that mental health service users are facing now. One is, of course, we know that mental health service users generally tend to have more physical health conditions. And so getting access for physical health treatments is now more problematic. So that's kind of mm -hmm. built up. So, for example, I had a, um, um, I, I had a, I have a fracture to my left shoulder, so I'm not able to get... Um, um, support, you know, support for that. Other people, you know, tend to smoke more. So, you know, those kind of services are not really available to us. A higher rates of self-harm, higher rates of addiction. So I think people with drug and alcohol issues and food addiction issues, you know, the whole um, kind of ritual of 
you know, when we eat and who we eat with is all completely disrupted to how we get our food. So I think all these things are adding to the um, mental, physical health is exacerbating the mental health issues that we have. I mean, another, of course, is poverty. Um, we know that people with mental health conditions tend to have, uh, to live in worse housing conditions. So if you can imagine you're kind of more or less forced to be in your house, you know, bedsit or whatever all the time. So these are the kind of uh, additional burdens that are also impacting mm. on, our, on, our, on our mental health. Yeah. Is there anything coming through on social media? Because it seems like we've got a lot of consensus here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is actually. There's a few questions. Um, one is um, basically, um, are service users in danger of being returned to virtual asylums? which is quite interesting. I think maybe reflects some of what Emma was saying earlier in her comments as well, in particular. So any thoughts on that one? I have some thoughts on the legislation, you know, like the, the Coronavirus Act, which mm. now easier, for example, is to detain people with just one doctor instead of, I think, two. Yeah. And also the easements under the CARE Act, which um, I think can be done by local social services. So, you know, one may argue that... Um, this is kind of reflective of the, you know, the tensions between, you know, delivering care at a time of um, uh, pandemic and, you know, something that's more humane, that's more mental health service user centred. I think these tensions have always been there. These tensions have always been there. And I think the United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disability is a, is a kind of a vision for a more uh, uh, humane, yeah. therapeutic mental health system but I think you know I think the the, the uh, pandemic is going to exacerbate all of those tensions uh, uh, kind of um, maybe push us more towards biomedical interventions that aren't necessarily of therapeutic benefit and may actually harm unfortunately mental health service users when um when the questioner is saying about a virtual asylum, uh, I wonder if are they meaning that people were sort of being kept more more distant, or that there would be um, barriers for certain people for accessing therapies and services and so on if they didn't have access. I think Raz has touched on many of those yeah. challenges, but certainly there's there are people who either don't have the and the, the cognitive or or technical ability to engage online or don't have access to the equipment and and actually having a good internet access and stuff actually costs quite a bit of money and for mm -hmm. people who you know really struggling on benefits that's a big barrier but that issue of um the accommodation where people are living in that's clearly a big issue for many many service users but interesting it is also for many staff and as as a, we had a big big team of researchers working on this project and it was very very noticeable that you're working with people and many of your junior colleagues are on you know short-term contracts not earning great deals of money many of them living in quite cramped conditions often joining your meetings from their bedroom or in their kitchen with their partner in the background and so on and these are real challenges for for many people um it also says something about um uh, the state of the world that we're, we're we're living in maybe but i think when we think about what's going to happen next and if there is a possibility that some of these new ways of working we may be encouraged to continue and i'm i'm open to some of those ideas but i think we also need to be very cautious and thoughtful about the implications not only for service users but also for staff and some of the challenges that brings yeah, there's a couple of things. Um, so just for clarification on the asylum issue, um, the comment now is about whether people have been forced into invisibility as they were in the Victorian era. Yeah. So that was the context of that yeah. question. Yeah. I Did you want to come in on that? Emma, just, um, I suppose, a little bit of balance. And I, I'm not in any way um, not agreeing with what's already been said, because there are certainly some groups um, that are going to be even more disenfranchised and isolated as a result of COVID and the way in which we're working. And they particularly will be those who already live in poverty, those who have severe and enduring. Um, so there really are some groups that are far more disadvantaged by the changes than others. 
And I just wanted to reflect, I suppose, the balance, because on the on the opposite end, is also we've seen that there has been better accessibility for some people. Mm. So particularly people who have disability issues or issues around social anxiety, they have absolutely loved the opportunity to have much more of an online presence if because that feels safer. It increases the opportunity around accessibility, particularly around some psychological therapies and group work. Um, because it's so as many people as it's isolated, there is another core group who are unable to access some of these things that now can. So it's by all means not a, a one size fits all. I guess for me, the worry has been is where choice is taken away with some mm. of it and where we're not actually assessing the impact that different um, interventions now have and, and kind of the law of unintended consequences. Yeah. Um, and certainly we're seeing some of that starting to emerge that most people can manage without that contact for some period of time, but not for long periods of time. And I think most people now are starting to feel um, they can cope with just phone contact, but we might be the only people they see on a weekly yeah. basis. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, and, and I think I think for many of us who've worked, particularly those who've worked in the community, supporting people, um, the, the the talking aspect is, is a part of it but sometimes it's also about noticing things noticing how the person's home is but also sometimes just doing little bits of practical help and I think Nikki touched on something earlier and you know anyone who's been a CPN community psychiatric nurse mental health nurse will tell tales of you know helping put up curtains or taking the vacuum cleaner around or or, or whatever and I think sometimes it's those small little things that they're a nice human touch it's warm it's supportive and um, you don't get that on a phone call. Um, the other thing that came across in our survey, for, for some people, the, the phone contact or video contact was okay for people where there was an established relationship, but much less satisfactory when you were starting to um, assess somebody or, or beginning in a, in a therapeutic relationship with somebody. I think there's still big challenges there. Was there anything else coming through? On social media. I love the fact that it was just one question. Not bad, eh? <laughs> yeah. yeah, we've got um, a very specific question about, um, which we'll respond to as well in the group later. Um, I'll respond after the discussion. And that is about someone saying, um, why do they have to wait two weeks to see the crisis team if they're feeling suicidal at the moment? Yeah. Yes, okay. it's always yeah. difficult to answer respond to those questions because mm -hmm. they're specific about where the person is and um, yeah uh, uh, yeah it should not be that way um mm -hmm. but without knowing more details about where they are it's difficult to yeah to, mm -hmm. to give I'll specific that one advice. up afterwards yeah i'll respond to that afterwards um, mm -hmm. but i think it's a useful point to raise generally isn't it if mm -hmm. people are experiencing delays and it actually um relates to um another question um, somebody's asked quite a similar question actually but also somebody's asked a question about um, well it's not a question it's more of a statement about people who don't have such acute needs at the moment um, not being the focus and therefore not having the same access to, um, to treatment and support as usual and that obviously going one of two ways either people being able to self-manage or people relapsing and becoming more acutely unwell. It links back to a lot of the things that, that yeah. Emma was suggesting about people having to prioritise, mm. staff having to prioritise. And you can't help but wonder what impact that has, Not certainly not just on, on service users, for whom that's extremely unfair, but also on the staff. If you're looking down your list and you're having to make those decisions, mm. particularly if you're not able to meet up face-to-face -face and have team decisions and share that responsibility and that choice, how that must make people, how leave people feeling. The impression we got from our survey was that the response of services seems to be quite variable. So it doesn't seem as though there's a blanket response everywhere. Um, so in some places, there's clearly been a, a big reduction in service provision, seeing people much less often, closing down some services, uh, reducing beds and, and so on. In others, there seems to have been a much more active attempt to continue providing a service, whether by phone or, or video or whatever. Um, and in, we've heard stories on, on some wards where they put in extra staff and provided more activities, but that hasn't certainly been a widespread response. So I think there has been quite a variable response. Mm. And one of the interesting questions perhaps over the next 
six months a year might be looking at what responses there were, what seemed to work better than others, um, how were those decisions made. Um, so, you know, a massively challenging time. And I think I've got an awful lot of sympathy for service managers and staff who were required to respond to this at enormous speed and have made quite incredible changes and some very successfully so, but in quite clearly in some areas less successfully. And just engaging with service users through Twitter and, and other ways, you do hear a range of experiences. So some people still getting quite good support and other people much, much lesser. And picking up on that social media query, it, it may be for some people who have less acute problems, but not necessarily. And I think there are some who've got quite serious problems who have felt neglected and, and forgotten almost. Yeah, I'll bring Emma in here to this point. Yeah, so, so the reflective practice, I've been running some reflective practice sessions as well as the specific um, focus groups that we did. And it is a very mixed picture has already been said. So there hasn't been a consistent approach and there has been lots of decisions quite rightly made at local levels in response to what they had available and, and how they felt they, they could best manage. The staff that we spoke to felt incredibly conflicted um, and they were very mindful and very distressed often that they weren't able to continue providing the support that they needed to. We also had stories of great courage where people had stood fast and perhaps, dare I say, broken the rules to ensure that people still got the care they needed. But that came at a cost, actually, as well. So um, we had some that spoke about abuse they'd suffered in the street, the fear of stigma um, as they moved into uniform, for instance, that suddenly they were kind of advertising to the street, not only that someone was being seen by mental health just in, in, and worrying about that confidentiality aspect, yeah. but also just the sheer aspect of donning PPE outside mm. someone's door. Yeah. That, that then kind of might advertise to others that that person had COVID. Yeah. And likewise, yeah. the fear from service users that chose not to have face-to-face -face contact, who absolutely refused to be seen because they didn't want staff infecting them. Mm. Um, it, it, there is all that kind of underlying fear and anxiety that's reflected in staff also being very frightened about um, infecting who they knew were vulnerable, particularly those that worked with older older um, people with mental health conditions and particularly those that provided outreach um, to care homes who spoke mm. about their fear of not wanting to be the one that was the spreader yeah. and talking about that yeah. um, and likewise carers absolutely begging that staff didn't go in so there has really been a real mixed as I say picture around people just really trying to manage um, and manage people's expectations people's anxiety still do the right thing and what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And I think everyone was really clear as well, although it was, dare I say, easy in some ways to, to kind of shift and, and close things down um, or work completely differently, the, the absolute acknowledgement that restarting is going to be even more tricky mm -hmm. um, in terms of what that might look like and making sure that we capture things that have worked relatively well, but we absolutely stop the things that have made things worse and just being really clear about what they might look like. But it certainly hasn't been one approach everywhere. Um, and it, it really is mixed. And again, mixed for different groups of people as well in terms of age um, and also presentation and, and need, dare I say. Mm. Absolutely. I think that's one of the things that's really coming through, isn't it? The fact that um, in some ways we're all having quite similar experiences, echoing each other's experiences. But on the other, you know, we've got this kind of, um, kind of contested ground a little bit in that, having everything online should make it really accessible, but then we're immediately seeing that's not accessible for everybody. It's also making people perhaps feel like, why aren't I getting the service I want to when it's just a matter of someone pressing a button? And that's and that's another issue. And then we're also coming across this, um, having to manage and, and still um, having to um, be really careful about how time and money is spent. And even though you think that this is a really democratizing force, on the other hand, you're quite rightly saying that there, there are other service users who had a very different experience and staff as well. I can think of lots of staff who have really um, benefited from being um, being off and away from this situation. And I can also um, really appreciate that there are other staff who have been really made very, very anxious by it indeed. Is there anything mm. coming through on um, social media, Vanessa? Yeah, there is. And it kind of reflects some of the things that Rasa was saying about, um, about digital communication. So we've mm. got things like um, the point about the nuances of nonverbal communication and much more difficult 
um, to pick up when you're talking to somebody digitally um, about kind of actually what was mentioned before about, you know, issues around if there's poor Wi-Fi um, when you're in the middle of talking to someone, issues about um, the boundaries, of physical boundaries of being at home and speaking to someone. And then a question, and I don't know if this has emerged um, in any of the research, the question is about what happens where mental health services have not implemented remote technology. So I guess, you know, the question is about are there areas where people aren't using digital technology and how are those areas managing? I'm not aware, personally. No, I'm not aware. Certainly our survey gave us the impression that... Um, I don't. I, I think the majority of people they were using telephone contact, and mm -hmm. I think if I'm trying to remember the figures, something like about twenty twenty five percent were saying about using video contact, um, things like Zoom and stuff. Um, but I think most are, are reliant on phone. Um, yeah. uh, we got the impression that in most places they were rolling out some form of support in in that remote way, and there was also to a lesser extent some. Um, encouraging use of sort of apps and other online stuff and I think probably more in the psychological therapies um, yeah. 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 Uh, it'd be, I just want to flag up we've talked quite a lot about um, community services but I think mm -hmm. it's worth thinking about about inpatient services I think it's yeah. going to say <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah can I just say, um, I mean, it might be worrying for everyone, but I'm just trying to put myself in the shoes of, let's say, someone who's been sectioned, they don't want to go into hospital, and as well as all the, you know, kind of normal trauma of that, which is not inconsiderable, then there is the fear that, you know, inpatient wards are, you know, a, a really, there's a very high death rate. So, I think for all these reasons, it's it's really very, very worrying time for people who are, you know, been sectioned and are forced to go to in mental health inpatient wards. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I'd agree with that, Ros, and I think it's also been really, really frightening for families and carers who haven't been able to visit um, and, and keep in touch in the way that they would want to as well. It must be, I can only imagine, it must be incredibly frightening anyway when your loved one is kind of snatched away in, in those sorts of circumstances. And then to know that you can't have the contact that you would like um, yeah. must just be horrendously traumatising um, and just make everything that little bit worse. Um, and of course, the fear of catching COVID because um, we know, unfortunately, that, that COVID has been caught within hospital um, and it is incredibly difficult to, to prevent transmission in some of our settings that are, you know aren't geared up for for social distancing and you know they're, they're very therapeutic environments where people are meant to come together so what must be an incredibly difficult situation is made just a hundred times worse. Alan mm. we just assumed you were going to say impatience and then went off did you want to finish what you were going to say? Oh I think I've cursed you. <laughs> is it frozen it's again? again. Can I just, Sorry um, <laughs> while we're waiting can I just mention about prisons as well because it, it strikes me that um that we haven't mentioned them yet I know we talked about forensic nursing but I'm aware that whilst um the government was allowed to release people who were you know in prison for non-violent crimes on license and not many people have been released during the pandemic and that for a lot of prisoners they're currently on lockdown which will mean that the rates of self-harm and suicidal behavior will increase and obviously a lot of the mental health support that's been provided isn't over in the cell at the moment it's um through telephone contact so i think it's partly a comment about that because i think you know whilst it's horrendous what's happening across mental health it's um, going to be even more striking, I would imagine, for people who are in prison and particularly vulnerable people. And I wondered if that had come through in any of the research, if there'd been any um, any comments from, you know, staff or people um, within the prison system. I'm not sure that um, Alan went into forensic settings. Mm -hmm. um, we'll have to wait for him to, to pop up again and actually ask him that one. Yeah, but there I is something... No. Yeah. There's a lot to be, um, in terms of this kind of like hidden stuff. And um, mm. one of the things that pops up into my head is um, 
the, the lack of safety maybe in people's homes as well, if they're being asked about, about issues around mental distress, maybe abuse issues, the fact that we, you know, we're already seeing a rise and spike in domestic violence. Yeah, Actually, absolutely. we are placing people at risk by sometimes asking these questions in settings where people just don't have privacy. Yeah, yeah that did come up in the um, conversations I've had with staff um, where they've had to text before they ring to make sure it's safe and have safe words. So that has mm -hmm. come up a lot. Um, and just in reflection to what Vanessa was saying, I think we haven't necessarily been able to connect, or certainly I haven't been able to connect with some of the prison healthcare staff in the way that I would like. I know that they have nationally looked at those, but certainly in the high secure forensic settings, we have linked up in forensic settings. And there are similarities in that they don't have visits at the moment. This is virtual only. But there are some similarities in terms of um, how that shifted. And of course, that will have improved access in some ways because, it, again, there's that accessibility that it's not one size fits all, that for some that will make visits easier, more accessible, perhaps more frequent. But it doesn't get away from that lack of human touch and human connection that as humans we crave. Um, exactly. So you wonder how long that will sustain us for. Um, it's okay as a short term, but but you know what is the longer term impact really around that, that lack of connection yeah i agree do yeah. you want to finish your point alan uh, i can't remember what i was saying i was just <laughs> trying to demonstrate the difficulties of maintaining a therapeutic relationship when your internet breaks off <laughs> twice Sorry, <laughs> it's very weird when you're talking, you don't know whether you're still connected or not. Anyway, uh, just just picking up on that last bit that Emma was saying, uh, I'm not quite sure if this has already been said, but um, you talked about the physical touch, but one of the big challenges people spoke about in inpatient settings was that challenge of trying to work with people when they were behind PPE and how on earth do you develop relationships and and really connect with people and we, you know we use our faces so much don't we our eyes our smiles you know, just little looks to communicate with people and that is so much harder it's harder for anyone working with PPE but in I think in mental health particularly it's a big challenge and particularly if you're working with someone say with psychosis or with dementia or mm -hmm. perhaps learning disabilities <laughs> real real challenges for how people do that and that was a big concern about not just for them the difficulties of doing but how do you work well and therapeutically with people with those challenges and did, you, did anyone come across any examples of people like surmounting them because they are they're quite big aren't they but people have been showing themselves to be surprisingly creative yeah has anyone see, come across anything not in the mental health context no. One yeah. of the weirder ones I saw was people suggesting that you draw a smiley face on your COVID mask. And I was thinking, Obviously. I can't imagine anything more horrifying. Seeing <laughs> someone come down the, with like a big a mask big with a horrible... Yeah. <laughs> I think this idea about putting um, putting things on you, you know, like a picture of what your face is like underneath and, and you know, that idea of like um, humanising yourself is really interesting. And when I first saw nurses doing that, you know, pictures, this is what, you know, like a T-shirt with their own face on and that sort of thing. Was it really reminded me back of the day of, of do you remember when you working with people with dementia, people would put like boards outside showing what that person was really like. It's like yeah. there's so many things that seem to be, you know, echoing around at the moment. Yeah. One of the themes that was coming out, the past we didn't get into as much as I think is interesting, was this idea about how do we keep moving forward in terms of practice? Because obviously we're in a situation where everything has been disrupted. How do we know what to keep and what to get rid of as quick as possible? And the other thing is this medicalization. So we skipped over the uniforms thing. <laughs> all my uniform, uniform today, Nikki, for the first time ever. So the whole 21 years I've been qualified, I've never ever worn a, a uniform as a mental, a registered mental health nurse. And today, I had to wear a uniform. How was it? Well, it was um something I swore I'd never ever do, bizarrely, because it it was something that was always felt to be really. And, you know, when I was qualifying and learning, it was, it was part of that whole stigma piece and that how, whole power yeah. differential and um, something that wouldn't be appropriate. But actually, I've resisted and I hadn't worn a uniform seeing people. And actually, I, the feedback was that, that patients, I wasn't doing the best thing for patients either in terms of infection control. And that perhaps mm. it was more about my issues than theirs. And, you know, so I've conformed. But I guess there's still something to consider, isn't there, about that whole power dynamic and what have we lost by moving into to wearing things like uniforms? I I mean, maybe we haven't, but I think there's a whole a whole wealth around culture that will need to be addressed going forward. 
and around identity and how we identify as mental health nurses and what it means to be a mental health nurse and how that role is going to shift and change. Um, and I, I want to. Part of it, isn't it? I want to try very hard to sidestep the uh, invitation to discuss uniforms. Um, and I just want to talk about the, the going forward. And I'd be interested in Raz's thoughts on this, that, that to me, the absolutely essential thing is that um, we need to start having discussions with service users and with staff um, around what's working, what's not working, what would they like to see maintained, what do they need to change and how do we do that and negotiating that and I think for a lot of people um, and whether it's in research or in, in practice I think there's a lot of concern at the minute that we could be entering a time where all the ideas of patient involvement services involvement will be quickly jettisoned and and actually we have got to a point where there was some really good co-production going on both in practice and quality improvement in research and education and it's really, really important we keep that going um, or get back to it, uh, re resurrect it, and perhaps do it even better. Raza, do you have any thoughts about that? Um, yeah, I mean, there have been many, many initiatives, you know, that uh, service, mental health service users have played a, a very large part in. Um, and I think it's, it's obviously a very difficult time now, but I think what does need to be resisted is this kind of push towards a biomedical focus on kind of contain the COVID-19, which is of course a consideration. One of the things I was quite, um, I mean, it's a cultural thing, I think, that in, in, in different countries, there's different kind of levels of focus on kind of, if you like, risk containment and management versus, you know, um, therapeutic benefit. And I think, you know, hopefully, we're in a culture where we can try and maximize the therapeutic benefit. Because, I mean, I can just talk from my personal perspective. I've been uh, forcibly medicated on a mental health inpatient ward, not, not during this pandemic. But um, that experience of being uh, almost dehumanized um, has actually stayed with me to this day. And the lasting effect is that it's made me very wary of um, kind of uh, accessing support, even when I need it. I'm very lucky at the moment in the, the, um, the therapeutic community I'm part of, it's not about a biomedical kind of interventions, it's talking therapy, working together as equals. So I think um, in the longer term, we really mustn't lose sight of that goal of, you know, uh, helping people make choices, for example, you know, all of that, treating people as human beings, you know, even in even in settings which are quite restrictive, you know, like an inpatient ward that is quite a restrictive kind of environment. But how can we maximise people's choice, you know, and, 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 and humanity? And I think we mustn't kind of let go of that, even in the face of this very, very kind of severe um, uh, uh, pandemic. So one, one of the um, kind of initiatives, it was in Sheffield, it was called Respects. Um, it was a package actually developed by uh, mental health service users from BAME communities. And some of them, particularly Black African, African Caribbean communities have very high rates of use of control and restraint and, you know, over medication, all of that seclusion. And it was basically working with um, staff on basically treating people with respects and how how to do that and how to form a therapeutic how to form a relationship with people on inpatient wards um i think that's the key to all of this is how do you form a relationship with people because that is really really often at the heart of people's kind of wellness and recovery and that you know it's 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 more difficult now i mean even the physical touch you know shaking people's hands and all of that's very much um difficult so it's it's i can i can see it's a difficult balance but the mm. balance has to be maintained i think everyone would agree with you with about. that absolutely there's a lot of nodding going on there and i was just looking are we actually getting quite near the end of our time now unbelievably that is whizzed yeah. by um can we go to vanessa for uh, any last questions that we've got so that we can yeah 
There's quite a few questions that we haven't addressed and we will look at the discussion thread afterwards and respond to any questions. But to summarise and to end on, there's quite a few questions asking if anything positive has come out of COVID that we can take forward in mental health post-COVID. So then that's quite a good note to end on, really. Any examples? Oh, I, and I guess I, for me, the digital is one, isn't it, in some respects, both positive and negative, but... For, for me, the, the big positive has been the speed of change and the mm. fact that services have demonstrated that they really can do things differently very quickly. Now, I'm not saying that it's been ideal circumstances, and I know people have had to work ridiculous hours to make that happen and so on. Mm. But um, we've seen so often, and in fact, there's a service user commentary that accompanies our paper, which will come out very soon from our staff survey. And the final line on that is, is exactly on that, that, um, that there's been a response to, to, uh, the, to needs to, to turn things around very, very quickly. But actually many things that service users have been asking for for a long, long time, services have been incredibly slow at responding to and making changes. And that needs to change. And I think, in a way, it's perhaps opened up our minds to what is possible. Um, mm. And I think in the staff survey as well, some of the we asked people about what were the positives, and one of the things that came from them was that uh, working environment where suddenly they some of the bureaucracy was stripped down, decisions were being made quickly. You didn't have to fit in twenty-seven forms and getting sign off from five levels of, of, of managers or whatever. And, and that's very attractive. And I think we see the same in universities and stuff as well. Um, but I think something around that, it would be nice if we could try and keep some of that mm -hmm. and apply it to the things that service users are saying to us. It would be good if you did this and this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, certainly. My, my, I mean, Mark Thatcher is not someone I usually kind of agree um, with in a lot of things. <laughs> Where are you going with this, Raza? Yeah. <laughs> Because, you know, after the Falklands War, she said, did it take a war to help us realise what we're capable of and our greatness? And I think here, it seems to have taken this pandemic for services, as you just said, Andrew, to really change so suddenly and so amazingly quickly. And so to me, I, I want to hold on to that and say services are capable of root and branch change, you know, mm. if they put their mind if there's if the will is there they can implement many of the changes that mental health service users have been asking for particularly around you know uh, moving away from control and strength and all of that i think these fundamental changes that are possible if the will is there and i think what this pandemic has shown is that services are capable of making fundamental changes if they really want to and from a mental health nursing perspective, um, I think the other positive area that although I, I started off by talking about the invisibility of mental health nurses um, in terms of that's how we might feel as a profession, that is certainly not being seen more externally because actually um, the number of people applying to be nurses this year has increased exponentially. So the whole brand of nurse has been has kind of been highlighted beyond anything we could have imagined in the year of the nurse. But of that, um, more of those are actually people wanting to be mental health nurses. Mm, that's great. 26% of all those applications are actually people wanting to be mental health nurses. So Brilliant. amongst all that invisibility, we have managed to inspire the next generation mm. of mental health nurses. I, I think that's, that's really a, significant. It's absolutely fantastic. And mm. mental health nursing is such, such a good career and such a, a fantastic yeah. job to have. And it has many opportunities for you to, to work in lots of different ways. Um, so what we need to do is welcome those new applicants and to mm -hmm. help them stay. We need to make sure they're paid well and that they're, they're given good supervision and develop professional development and training and supported to work in uh, very good mental health uh, environments. And we don't off always manage that and we need to, <laughs> buck up our ideas on that because it is a fantastic job you work with yeah. lovely brilliant people like raza and um and it's just a, a great great uh, occupation for people so uh, i would really welcome that good stuff mm. vanessa is there anything you wanted to say no um, no i think that's another person 
yeah yeah no I think I just reflect what's already been said and it's really encouraging to hear um that nursing's become much more visible particularly mental health nursing of mm. course and um, just echo you know Alan's comments about um us needing to think about how we not only attract mental health nurses but how we maintain them as well and give them the opportunities that you know enable them to be um effective mental health nurses and to to stay in mental health nursing throughout their careers because I would agree it is a great career um and it's important that people have good opportunities and that they're looked after um and um and I guess my only other comment is and I've said this already but you know to thank people who've participated online we've had a lot of online engagement tonight and I know that I haven't been able to feed all your questions into the discussion but I will go back and I will answer the questions and um you know if there's anything specific for anyone in the panel I will forward those questions on to people as well so thank Absolutely. you for that. Well. And we'll share we'll share the research out when that comes and make sure that yeah. that's out and about. And it's so important, isn't it, for people working in mental health to create knowledge that helps us progress. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't make any difference whether that's coming from surveys, questionnaires, reflective groups, research, that kind of like mental health voice is so powerful. And it, and also, you know, this conversation we've had today, I think has been a really great, great pleasure to see how much yeah. we have in common, how much we can learn and support each other, and also how precious mental health mental health working is and how it really needs to be valued. So I say I've really enjoyed tonight. Could I, yeah. could I just say one thing about the, the making research available? Um, so I've been talking about the staff survey, and we also did a rapid review of international literature on COVID-19 and mental health services. Both of those, we hope, will be available tomorrow. Um, certainly by the end of the week, mm -hmm. and I'll circulate links to that and be publicising on Twitter and so on. Um, but hopefully those will be freely available very, very soon. Fantastic. Uh, oh, and just to, to acknowledge the fantastic team of people who made all that work available, because uh, there's a massive team of people behind all that. It done it, turned it around at great speed. Mm. Okay. Any last words from anybody? Last orders, that's it then. Very, 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 very uh, enjoyable session. Um, Dave, we're going to be checking out then. I'd just like to say good night to everybody.